Hello and welcome to today's episode of Disaster Discussions. Uh, welcome to our podcast. We're here at the IBHS studios and we have a new face with us here today. Uh, we have our research scientist, Ali Merhi, joining us here today. And we're actually gonna be talking a little bit about the tropics. We are in November as we are um, airing this episode as the last month of hurricane season. Uh, and so we're gonna get into some of the details of our uh, deployment that we had on Hurricane Adelia. Talk a little bit about the season recap and get into a little bit of the science behind some of those observations and why we take them. So thanks so much for joining us here today. Um, and Ali, thank you for joining us here today. This is actually your first visit with us here on the podcast. Yeah, uh, it's been a while and uh, I'm really happy yeah. to be here. Thank you for having this chance to Yeah, chat. yeah, it's been great. So, um, you know, we've, we've been uh, here over a year now. It's hard to believe that we've been doing these podcast episodes for a year. Um, and when we do these, we like to highlight our own scientists as well and show you a little bit of the inside workings of our, of our research facility um, and some of the data collections that we go through. And um, Ali, today, I know we're gonna talk about Adalia specifically, but there's some other deployments that you've also been out on recently uh, with our HAIL team. You've heard us kind of reference these in past episodes where we go out and do these disaster uh, investigations, but in this case, we actually went out before the storm. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that. So. First of all, um, let's share a little bit with our viewers about you, kind of like some of your early career and uh, how you came to be at IBHS. And I, I will ask one question to begin with, pointed. Um, what got you interested in wind engineering? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> it all started with my interest in buildings and mm -hmm. construction. So I remember when I was a kid, my father used to drive me back from school and there were a lot of construction sites and you see a lot of people getting involved and that was in the early 90s so mm -hmm. prefabrication was not really the mainstream so a lot of people coming together to achieve a building mm -hmm. and then you know watching cartoon or when i remember like disney's hercules for example a lot of disasters uh, mm -hmm. earthquake wildfire uh, wind and you see these buildings getting torn so easily yeah. and you know in the background you have this issue a lot of people making this monument or mm -hmm. anything and then suddenly just by uh, peril they just disappear right mm -hmm. so that put me on the path towards civil engineering and particularly bridges mm -hmm. and as I was studying those at university uh, I noticed that wind is a particular issue yeah. especially mm -hmm. as uh, construction and buildings are evolving we're going taller in buildings and longer in, in bridges spans and we shift by doing that from earth earthquakes being the main driver of the failure mm -hmm. to wind. Yeah. And looking at the complexity uh, of that actually, uh, that sparked the, let's say the scientific interest. But seeing the impact of that, when you have a hurricane impacting states mm -hmm. and the loss it leaves behind, it, it gives you also the seriousness mm -hmm. of, of the impact on society, on people. So all of that kind of gives, uh, gave me a, you know, a sense of, of curiosity on how do we solve this? Yeah. We have come so far as society mm -hmm. and science. Um, so yeah, that's how it all uh, sparked a lot of uh, factors from here and there. Yeah. Um, but it was all fueled by the way, you know, like childhood mm -hmm. and cartoon I remember Do Dorothy Gale from the Wizard of Oz yes, in Kansas. Yes I know yeah <laughs> that's inspiration <laughs> so, for a couple of other people yes. here at the lab too yeah. Yeah exactly so uh, you know all of that 
just sparked the curiosity mm -hmm. on, on solving these issues from a scientific perspective. Yeah. Um, and that's how it all started. Yeah, um, that's great. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I think a lot of us probably have that moment in, in childhood yeah. where it's just kind of like the light bulb went off. Some people experienced a weather event, and so yeah. you know, it's we always like to ask people about their stories and kind of see like what what their perspective was. It's just interesting to see how people's um, motivations kind of evolve as they, as they grow up and, and that kind of thing. So thanks for sharing that yeah, with yeah. us. So, um, so we talked a little bit about how you um, kind of got interested into wind engineering. Um, let's talk a little bit about your academic background because mm -hmm. your roots go all the way back to Genoa, Italy, I believe. So just kind of want to talk a little bit about your academic background and how you got to be here uh, at IDHS and found yep. our cool facility. <laughs> yeah, so uh, as I was saying, because of all these barrels, I chose to go and study in, in Italy, mm -hmm. and particularly University of, of Genova, because they had really this good program in civil engineering. Uh, and it all started with the interest in earthquakes, mm -hmm. uh, to be frank, because in my childhood, I was in Beirut, Lebanon, mm -hmm. and there were a couple of earthquakes, I remember, in the building I was living in, and you feel the building shaking. So I started there, and as I was getting closer to the end of my bachelor's degrees in Genova, um, I noticed how you know, like slender buildings tend to be uh, failing due to wind more, which was shocking to me. Uh, but really, like, um, that thread that I caught on just pushed me towards going, you know, to the masters. And then just what happens? So, like, you know, sometimes you conclude something with a question, and that's what happened. I, I ended my bachelor's with that question. Why do buildings fail due to wind more than earthquakes? in these particular cases. So following that thread, I went into, you know, some kind of structural dynamics, how, you know, like when you have uh, the way that uh, the barrels act on, on a building, like during an earthquake or during wind, you have some dynamic interaction. It's not just uh, a brute force that acts. Mm -hmm. So that pushed me towards understanding more like the structural dynamics. And I ended up with more threads. So, right. <laughs> you know, like you end, you end up with seeing one equation that, for example, is applied to structures moving, but mm -hmm. also to circuits in electrical engineering. So you get fasc fascinated by the math and seeing why and what kind of factors influence how a building resists. Yeah. And because of that, I was taking, a, I decided to take a wind engineering course in the masters. Um, and also other uh, courses due to earthquake. So I was still sitting on the fence for both. <laughs> yeah. They were both very interesting. So I did an exchange experience in Istanbul. So there was uh, the uh, exchange program funded by the European Union called Erasmus. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a little bit of uh, earthquake engineering courses, you know, like structural monitoring and a little more in depth about you know, uh, applied research in, mm -hmm. in earthquakes. And that was really fascinating, and especially like you know Turkey because a lot of earthquakes also right, you know, devastating, devastating earthquakes. exactly yeah. even recently. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that was very impactful for me. Uh, then when I went back, my at the conclusion of my exchange experience, I took the wind engineering course and saw the scale of these events, starting with the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, which mm -hmm. is a very famous video. I invite. Um, anybody who is interested in, in the possible effects of wind, yeah. how they can make a very sturdy bridge just get mangled. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was 
really due to a phenomenon that was not understood at the time even. And here we're talking about like the early 40s. So not yeah. a very long time ago. And earthquake engineering uh, is really progressing. And as, as we speak, there is a huge community in, in science that does research in earthquake. And uh, that's one of the reasons uh, IBHS also, you know, like is mainly involved in the perils that we do, which are right. wind, hail, Wi-Fi, and wind resilience. Mm -hmm. So based on that, I felt more the motivation to actually dive into those wind effects that yet need to be understood. As we speak, there are some phenomena that right. are still being studied. Um, and that drove me, you know, to choose at some point you have to choose right right <laughs> like which path do yes. you want you're like oh, i don't exactly. know exactly <laughs> exactly so I, I had to choose and yeah. I, I went with uh, wind engineering mm -hmm. and and particularly in genova a lot of floodings happened in the adriatic north Adriatic because of thunderstorms yes mm -hmm. a high gust of wind that caused damage at ports uh i remember i was coming back from class one time and uh Ironically, the professor was teaching us hydrology at the time. Oh. It was in raining intensely, and he, yeah. he was telling us, well, now you see like a lot of rain, and theoretically, uh, you know, there should be absorption, and everything gets drained towards the river at some point. I walked out, and as soon as I got the train station, the whole city was flooded. Wow, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and, and that was shocking to me as, like, you know, a thunderstorm mm -hmm. that you usually see on the Weather Channel and right. something happening. Right. You wouldn't expect it because this much of damage yeah. with all the infrastructure that we have. So that drove me actually to want to study the wind-related effects of thunderstorms, right. especially with the damage they cause, uh, starting from the early 60s on mm -hmm. aircraft and whatnot until yeah. now. And that's what drove me to go for my uh, master's exchange mm -hmm. for my thesis at RPI in upstate New York yeah. through my who was my mentor at mm -hmm. the time. Yeah, we sparked that interest. Yeah, and it's it's great to see how um, you know these experiences that we have, you know, where weather is impacting our built environment. Right, that's what, all that we do here at IBHS. Right, we do that across multiple perils, and we're going to kind of focus on wind today. Well, actually, wind and wind-driven rain, yeah. which we haven't talked a lot about wind-driven rain, um, and a lot of people might not really think about it. They probably just think, oh, it's wind-blown rain, and it's just um, you know, it's not going to you've got an umbrella, it's not going to do a whole lot of good when there's wind, and rain. So it's one of those things that's probably just more like a nuisance. But um, it actually is a, a fairly big loss driver here. And it's one of these things we call a loss amplifier. And so we'll get into kind of why we care so much about that particular side of the peril. But, um, but you know, now that you're here at IBHS, um, you have your PhD now, we're full into uh, our wind research and now wind-driven rain research. Um, I kind of alluded to this when we started that we also do field deployments here and you got to go on your first one um, over this past summer. Um, as I mentioned, we, we do these post-disaster investigations where we actually go in after an event and we do that from a research perspective to try and see what knowledge can we gain from the field and say, okay, what were some of the failures here? What were some mm -hmm. of the excess, uh, successes? And if we can then observe those things in the field, that helps to inform our research here. And we've talked about our HAIL program before with Dr. Ian Giamanco, who's been on here a couple times. So that was the team that you got to go out uh, and experience some time with. Tell us what that was like. Oh, yeah. Um, so that was a thrill. Yeah. <laughs> Just uh, um, in one word, a thrill. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's because uh, the objective of actually trying to deploy the probes, and I'm sure probably in, uh, talk, uh, in detail about it, but we are on an actively trying to predict a small scale 
to be convected storm uh, in real time and where we need to deploy these probes to uh, get the measurements that we need actually as real data. So, mm -hmm. uh, y y you know, like within the matter of half an hour, things can change. I need to, you need to drive uh, a long distance uh, just to position yourself and try to capture that. And uh, it's all totally worth it, like, you know, putting the sweat mm -hmm. when you look at that data and see that you actually got something that you can mm -hmm. analyze and replicate here at the lab. So yeah, we did, we deployed for uh, about 18 days. Uh, we spent uh, about a week in the Texas Panhandle. Mm -hmm. And You're uh, familiar with that area? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, yeah, storm ba storms back and forth. Uh, I think from what I remember, we likely did not deploy more than twice in a day. And mm -hmm. by the point, I mean like uh, go actually ahead of the storm and position Yeah, it's, that's something people don't think about. Yeah, it's yeah. like we can deploy, but you know, then we have to go get the instruments and then do our measurements. And so in order to be able to do that, you got to be really quick on the draw. So it, yeah, it's, it's it can be a, a fast paced um, couple of hours. Exactly. Additionally to that, this time we had for the first time uh, asphalt shingle panels. That's because right, right. <laughs> we wanted to look at the actual real damage caused by hail. Uh, when it's outside, like on a, on a roof, how it would look like on one of our panels, mm -hmm. and compare that with the results from our uh, testing here at IBHS. Right. So taking panels out from a van and putting them back on, that also uh, adds some time. So we tried as much as we can to be accurate in our prediction, and uh, that adds also to the stress of making the right decision right. on the go. Um, so, yeah, and uh, we went then to Oklahoma and what we call no man's land. Yeah, uh, I learned that. <laughs> there, there are a few areas, if you've <laughs> ever been out to the plains, uh, um, it is beautiful countryside, but there's sometimes yeah. there's a lot of nothing and then there are towns and that's yes. where you, know, you kind of refuel yes. and everything, yes. but there, there's a, a lot of open space uh, to yes. cover. Yes, beautiful. Uh, and, and that was the first time for me going uh, in, in those areas. and. Right finding the storms, how severe they can be, yes. that was shocking to me. Like I I have experienced for the first time, like seeing an actual mesocyclone, mm -hmm. not a hail. And uh, then you realize the severity of, and you understand more like, why do we do these things? Um, because as a large sized hail can cause significant damage and we really need to see how we can actually rate whatever we put on our roof and develop an actual performance rating right. uh, that is realistic. Mm -hmm. and, and it's all about being realistic. And we will revisit that also mm -hmm. on different perils. Right. Uh, but yeah, um, I was thrilled and I'm happy to do this again because right. as a scientist, we are always, and uh, for anybody, like the curiosity I think yes. uh, is a fascinating thing. About yeah, and I agree with you there. Um, having done my first you know, real uh, storm chasing trip for our with our department when I was in graduate school at Texas Tech, um, being able to see just just see a supercell for the first time, in I believe we were in Southwest Oklahoma, uh, some colleagues of mine at the time we were like, hey, our classes, mm -hmm. you know, they canceled this class this afternoon. We don't have any labs today that we're teaching. So anybody want to go on a you know anybody want to go chasing storms? We're like, okay, I'll go. Um, but getting out there in the plains didn't produce a tornado. We didn't get into the core or anything or experience the precipitation from it. But it was just out in an open field and just to see how large these 
um, supercell thunderstorms, the mesocyclone that you refer to, how expansive they can be, and they can produce some really gnarly weather that if you have never, I mean, here in the southeast, you've, you've now experienced severe thunderstorms here in the southeast. They can be pretty, pretty rough and tumble. Yes. <laughs> um, but even still, and I've grown up here as well, but even still getting out into the plains, they are just a different type. They're a different beast, and you really see the, the hazards that they can bring. Um, just torrential, heavy rain, um, varying sizes of hail, some of that large, and we know even small hail can be damaging in the aggregate. We've, we've done that research here. Um, but the amount of rainfall and then wind and rain, right? Wind-driven rain that we get in there. It's Wind-driven rain is something that we deal with across all perils, but it is fascinating to get out there and observe it in the real world. And that, that does help inform the work that we do here. And, and even what you said about the, um, the asphalt shingle panels that we're deploying, we're also deploying those right next to our distrometers because they're collecting that data about the hail, right? And what's, what's the one-to-one? So yeah, that's that's really what we care about. Yeah, yeah. So, exactly, we were collecting all like the over like all the metadata that we can collect to actually replicate everything. So, right. the visual of the damage, the characteristics of the hailstones, the mass, size, shape, mm -hmm. and we crush them to get the compressor transfer. Just so we can take everything, and do it here, knowing that all right, if we do this kind of test with this given size of hail. This is the type of damage that, give or take, we need to expect. Right. Um, just to always validate mm -hmm. uh, whatever experiment we do. Um, yeah, and that expectation yeah. of performance, right? You kind of mentioned that. That is the thread that kind of follows everything we're going to talk about today. That's ultimately what drives a lot of our work here is that when we do these tests, it's it's ultimately we're kind of taking those current test test standards that are out there and seeing. Are they valuable? Do they tell us what we need to know? Because that's how we know what to expect from them. And to your point, asphalt shingles, you know, we're learning. Maybe we shouldn't expect a whole lot, <laughs> depending on what on their age and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, it's all a part of the process. So, so we've covered the hail side of deployments. Now you've had that, but you got to go on another deployment um, this past fall. And so in late August, as some of you listeners may remember. Uh, we had Hurricane Adalia that maxed out as a Category 4 hurricane with 130 mile per hour winds. Um, thankfully, it was weakening as it approached the Florida coast, Big Bend of Florida, which we know is a very vulnerable area for storm surge. And while we don't uh, research the impacts of water here at IBHS, we do know that it, it is one of the deadliest um, aspects of a hurricane, of a tropical cyclone, is water, whether that be storm surge or uh, freshwater flooding from rainfall. Uh, and the like. So we, we do care about those threats, but we just don't actually research those here. Um, but yeah, it, it did make landfalls a category three, so it was weakening upon landfall at least. Um, but there were some interesting observations that we'll get into a little bit. Um, well, let's just jump into them really quick and we'll talk a little bit more about um, some of the observations that you've got here in a minute. But Adalia, while it was powerful in winds when it maxed out there, this was different than, say, a Hurricane Ian, right? Where much larger storm, a much larger wind field, right? What were some of the characteristics of the Dahlia that we, we saw? So uh, based on the measurements and the, the measurements that we collected from our IBHS mm -hmm. tower, um, at 10 meter height, I remember like I was comparing the data we got with some of the models mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, they were uh, looking and uh, plotting the, the swath of the wind field. Mm -hmm. uh, from the measurement, what was surprising to me is the three-second gust speed at 10-meter height close 
to the eye of the hurricane was uh, quite lower than what was predicted. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the particular thing about this uh, hurricane itself was the strong gradient of, of wind. So as you move mm -hmm. out further of the eye of the hurricane, there was this sharp drop in the wind speeds. Mm -hmm. And this is not something that you typically uh, observe. And, and this kind of data actually helps correcting or feeding into uh, whatever data you have to improve uh, your, your prediction. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but just to add, like the, the wind speed was uh, one aspect, but you know, like we went there and measured also mm -hmm. temperature, pressure, and uh, something novel. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. Oh, well, uh, yeah, so you were kind of getting into some of the variables there that we're measuring. Tell us a little bit about this tower. So um, it's a PIP tower, which um, stands for, what was it? I, I wrote Precipitation Imaging I, Probe. Yes. Um, I had not heard of one of those. I'm a meteorologist, but that was m m not my field of study when it yeah. comes to um, you know tropical cyclones and that kind of thing at, at Texas Tech. We did have um, some deployable towers that I think are similar. Um, I didn't personally work with those, but I know um, our colleagues did. Uh, but tell us a little bit about this tower and, and what it is. What's it measuring? Yeah, so uh, thanks to our collaboration with um, many entities that do research, including uh, University of Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, University of Florida is uh, very active on hurricane deployments. They have their own deployable towers that are trailers that are about 10,000 pounds mm -hmm. that you tow and yeah, they're pretty heavy, yeah. <laughs> especially when you have them on a truck and, and uh, driving them. Um, and what they do is they measure wind speeds, pressure, temperature, and, okay. and particularly the wind speed, they measure at 5 and 10 meters. Mm -hmm. One of them measures also at 15 meter height. Okay. Uh, and we did uh, leverage that connection with the University of Florida also to uh, have a fourth tower. and. While this tower is very similar to the ones they have, they measure wind speed also at five and 10 meter height mm -hmm. and pressure and temperature. We added something that is yet to be explored in science. Uh, and uh, to your point, the precipitation imaging probe, yeah. the mm -hmm. PIP, um, what this instrument does is it measures the size of the water droplets and it counts them. So mm -hmm. by doing that, we actually, when while we are measuring the wind speed at the same instant of time, that PIP uh, detects, counts, and sizes the water particle droplets. Okay, so drop size, yeah, gotcha. Exactly, so this is something that was done only one time, and that was in mm -hmm. Hurricane Mike in 2008, yeah. and it didn't move forward afterwards, and who knows why. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, we are navigating here in a new zone, exploring. It's like, uh, you know, that moment when you f get something for the first time right. and uh, you're like, wow, okay, mm -hmm. what are we gonna do now? Yeah, you're like, well, <laughs> what do we do with it, it's new. Um, yes. And, um, and that's cool that you pointed on that, right? Um, we talk a lot about here at the lab, we're, we're doing things all the time, right? We're, we're using things that, you know, we might look at an object and be like, okay, this is what its purpose mm -hmm. is, but like, how else can we use it here? So we do our own kind of prototypes, designs, and sometimes we 3D print things. We're like, you know what, this doesn't exist, we can't buy it anywhere, so let's just make our own. Um, so it's kind of that, um, that ideation and creativity and fabrication and innovation, really, that takes place here. And to your point, um, this, this imaging probe, the precipitation imaging probe, we're able to do something that, right, it's maybe only been one other time that this kind of data was really collected. So this is kind of among the first of its kind type yeah. of observations. And I mean, what's yeah. it feel like to be a part of uh, an initiative like that? 
so it's it has many layers because mm -hmm. I also experienced a hurricane event for the first time. Right. So yeah. uh, having to drive like driving so and I decided to go using my car because um, I didn't feel comfortable renting a car. Yeah, <laughs> <and> yeah. <laughs> going, like, uh, do yeah. you want to take this into a hurricane? Which, just to let you know, um, yeah. um, universities do all the time, so yeah, they kind of yeah. know that you're coming. So that's yeah. when your uh, your contracts with them get a little bit um, particular. So e exactly. <laughs> so uh, and then uh, University of Florida gave uh, the go for their deployment. Mm -hmm. So we decided, uh, and we want to help, and we want to be there also. Right. Um, so uh, it was the decision was made on the day before, two days before. So the hurricane, I think the landfall was Wednesday morning. Mm -hmm. Monday morning was the decision was made, like 48 hours before landfall, yeah. give mm -hmm. or take. Um, then I went down to Florida, and by midnight I was there, Tuesday morning. So the day before uh, the hurricane, about 24 hours, mm -hmm. I was at UF at the Powell Lab, uh, equipping and getting ready, getting the towers ready, and, and really helping because mm -hmm. I really had not much experience and I don't I didn't know much how to use the towers and it was thanks to mm -hmm. uh, our collaborators at University of Florida who yeah, had great. me so we left the, the the campus at about 10 in the morning and we started looking at the National Hurricane Center updates mm -hmm. because a good thing about the hurricane is that you can actually now predict its trajectory give yes. or take. so we we getting great right so now we've come way more accurate than mm -hmm. a few decades ago, right. at least uh, predicting the trajectory. So as the National Hurricane Center was posting, posting updates, we were making decisions based on that, where to deploy a tower or two. Mm -hmm. So uh, we made a decision to deploy two towers around the Gainesville area, mm -hmm. one to the south and one uh, outside the waste the water uh, waste management facility mm -hmm. in Newberry, so a little to the southwest of uh, Gainesville. And that was done by about 1 p.m., give or take. So mm -hmm. we were trying to deploy one tower after every update. So this way, gotcha. as the prediction became more accurate, mm -hmm. we make a better decision on when to deploy right where to deploy the next tower. And so as you're thinking about where to deploy, what, what are the variables that you're looking at? Are you trying to get close to the eye wall or the center of the storm or just where you think some of the heaviest rainfall is going to be? Yeah, and uh, that's a very good question because there are a few, a few factors. So, for example, for the PIP, we want it to be as close as possible to the shoreline. Mm -hmm. Because the shoreline, okay. as soon as the hurricane starts dissipating, we want it to get the the rainfall is, right. or like what the rainfall looks like uh, using the PIP. The other factors are the towers need to be in open terrain configuration. Right. So basically a flat ground mm -hmm. with least vegetation possible, so no trees. Right. And right. no power lines also mm -hmm. because it, you never know what might fall or what might uh, what objects might absolutely uh, when fly there's around. wind involved you you definitely have to do that do sort of a sight scope and be like ah this is no good or like oh this can work because you want that instrument to have that full visibility of the elements right so those measurements can be really solid exactly exactly uh, as as you mentioned and to your point also uh, the open uh, terrain configuration is a very good in wind engineering as a reference because the wind speeds usually are also measured, you know, on the runways at the airport. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the configuration that we want, besides also all the fact that we need to avoid all the windborne debris. So it's right. 
it makes our life easier as yes. a scientist to convert, <laughs> but also for safety purposes, definitely. So this mm -hmm. is like the perfect condition when we find it. It's not easy. Oh well, yeah, <laughs> because, I imagine uh, not. Yeah, especially when you, you have a lot of, uh, you know, like uh, buildings, if you're like close to a city or mm -hmm. rural area. Um, so that, that actually takes some time. But also another factor that is very important is we need to account for the fact that if there's gonna be any storm surge, mm -hmm. What is right. going to be the expected uh, wave height or like, you know, the, the water height? Uh, and we, we need to make sure that when we put a tower that we can actually come back and retrieve it. Uh, and we don't want it to be uh, pushed by water. Anymore. Right. So that was a very important factor that actually Ian, uh, thanks to Ian, he was mm -hmm. uh, trying to give us insight on the go right. also to avoid this area, Keaton Beach, for example. Uh, you, he like showed us what the mm -hmm. water, where the water is expected to reach in terms yeah. of uh, mm -hmm. waves. So we tried avoiding those. Areas. Yeah, that and that as we as I mentioned earlier, the the storm surge from that perspective, this is again one of the most vulnerable areas to storm surge in the continental United States. Um, that is that southwest coast of Florida, which was hit by Ian last year, and then also the Big Bend. Um, and so, yeah, it is very important to know where that surge is going to go. And I know that Ian, uh, in his time at Texas Tech on the hurricane deployment team, um, that's definitely something they had to deal with. And sometimes you ended up having to wade in some water to go yep. get the probe because you can't just leave it out there. It has very valuable data and the instrument itself is valuable yep. to you. You know, we don't just have uh, thousands and thousands of dollars to keep recreating instruments that we just go get damaged in a thunderstorm so um, or in a hurricane. So it's very important to, like you said, you want to get close to the coast, but at the same time, you have to be well. How close is too close, and so that we still get what we want, but we don't jeopardize the instrument or jeopardize our ourselves and from a safety perspective. Exactly. I mean, the towers are engineered. Um, like there's a company that actually designed them. Mm -hmm. uh, they were tested uh, with wind speeds and uh, uh, other like you know standard engineering practice to make sure that it does not fail for uh, any any reason because. Uh, this is some. Uh, this involves a lot of effort when you actually take a tower and put it there, from the instrumentation to all the infrastructure that you make, the, mm -hmm. the people taking uh, uh, some margin of, of risk on making decisions. Um, we need that data and mm -hmm. we need the instruments. Um, so, yes, we were trying to be uh, very careful, like uh, as we were uh, mm -hmm. mentioning earlier. You know, like considering all the possible factors, and then. As soon as uh, we left those towers, we went back. So, like the whole tower deployment thing actually ended around three a.m. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so, like a few hours Late before. Night. Yes, we tried using as many National Hurricane Center updates mm -hmm. as possible to make sure that we install those instruments where we know we are gonna get right. information that's gonna be useful for us. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we drove back to Gainesville and stayed and took shelter until. Mm -hmm. I have to say that you know the, the hurricane experience itself on uh, it was overwhelming uh, mm -hmm. because when you go there before the storm you go like the store to buy uh, supplies right. or there's yeah. a rationing of water and yeah. uh, I experienced this for the first time and now even now like as I'm learning on the go I'm even more motivated to go on these uh, events for mm -hmm. these particular missions because this saves a lot of trouble on the long term for families, for businesses, for everything. Yeah, yeah, you're right, and um, that's why you know, from a um, 
my former life as a broadcast meteorologist, you know, we're, we're constantly preaching, oh, every storm season, we even say that here at ADHS, um, have a plan, right, have those supplies, like have your go kit, and if you, you live in these uh, hurricane-prone areas, this is something, it's a way of life every year. You, you could anticipate that every single year. Um, there are millions of people who may never experience a, a tornado or something like that, but then they're here along the coast, especially a place like this, there are millions of people who might uh, experience a hurricane every other year or at some point in their lives. So kind of knowing all of the planning that goes into that, um, and we're just trying to get in there and collect data. Uh, we're not trying to also live in there. So it's just that's, that's why we talk about that preparedness. Yep. Um, obviously, we do that from a structural perspective, right? Yep. We want your home to be prepared, but on the personal level, too, you have to have things like food and water and, and that kind of thing to last um, for a few days if the power is out. You know, it's yep. an inconvenience, but you have to prepare for that. Yeah, so uh, exactly. And as someone who does research in these fields, I acted basically or essentially as I was someone who was resident there in mm -hmm. Florida. Right. Um, I went to grab water. I went to grab canned food and yeah. beef jerky. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I even had cash uh, yeah. because that, that was the recommendation. Was you never know. Yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and a fl uh, flashlight. And I had my computer and... Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then I stayed in the hotel where I was uh, residing in Gainesville yeah. until the storm was de mm -hmm. declared to be uh, over. There was no threat anymore. Yeah, uh, um, well, that's great. And I, I'm glad that we got to kind of share what your yeah. first experience was and I mean, really probably your first hurricane experience. So, mm -hmm. you've had a lot of uh, cool firsts from the weather side this year. You got to experience a, a, a hail field deployment for the first time, a supercell thunderstorm. Now we've got a tropical cyclone. So, um, and you've already got earthquakes on your list, so you're um, you're racking them up. And technically, yeah. you've got wind-driven rain now from the hurricane, so yeah. you've you've only got to experience a hailstorm directly now. <laughs> it's an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, but that's great though, and it's it's cool. Like you know, as you know, I'm a scientist. Like kind of come through that as well. Kind of remembering how I felt like experiencing these things for the first time. It just kind of really hits home. And we talk to that. We talk to people about that. Um, like from a damage perspective, once you go through a storm and you see how the damage can occur, you're like, oh wow, you know, I didn't realize it could happen that fast. I didn't realize that's how wind damage occurs or how water gets into my home or how hail damages our, our shingles or our siding or that kind of thing. Um, and that's the kind of thing that we want to use those experiences and we bring you those visuals here from the lab to try and educate you so that you don't have to experience a loss like that um, from a property perspective, um, and we can try to give you some information on the front end to try and prevent that. So it's 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 cool for us to experience that on our own because that helps us be better communicators for you as well. Exactly, and I have to say, uh, when we were going to retrieve the towers on our way back to Perry, then you experience, you see with your own eyes, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, the damage caused to not just the trees or power lines, right. but also to to buildings. Now, uh, the Big Bend. Uh, was lower in population mm -hmm. than other areas, right. uh, but still, you see, like buildings that had no roof, yeah, uh, or an entire roof collapse on what's mm -hmm. underneath, um, and that's sad. When you see it for yourself, you see the magnitude of, or the importance of actually having an actual building code that does provide better performance recommendation for component like down to the right. components not just uh, now gladly the Florida building code mm -hmm. uh, 
is performing, you know, like from, we've seen the success from Hurricane Ian, yeah. uh, and I'm sure um, many others have talked about this. Uh, but you still realize that we need to solve the problem down to the basic or smallest component. Mm -hmm. uh, because one failure of a component can trigger a lot of internal damage. Right. If you have that component being damaged on the roof, uh, there's going to be rain during a hurricane. Mm -hmm. You're going to end up with a puddle inside your, uh, whether it's a house, whether it's a business. Right. Uh, you're going to have to deal with a lot of aftermath mm -hmm. uh, in terms of cleaning up and things like that. So a small component damage mm -hmm. can, yes, can amplify the internal damage. You're right. And that's a great segue. Um, you kind of like made that transition for me. It's like now we, we kind of opened it up that we're going to talk about Adalia and some wind-driven rain. And that's not something that re people really think about, oh, like, you know, when you have a, until you have a water claim. Um, you don't really realize how much it gets, how easily it seems to get everywhere, right? It's one thing to deal with, oh, uh, you know, wind uh, damaged part of my roof or, or damaged part of my siding. But then when you have water getting into the structure as well, that's something like what you just talked about, small, small component failure, then cause a cascade of other opportunities for damage, lost, cause or loss and costly insurance claims for, for you as a homeowner. So, um, Let's talk a little bit about rain now. Um, you just kind of alluded to it that we can get, you know, if we have structural damage of some sort, uh, then water can get into the home. Um, let's let's talk about rain from a, um, a perspective of how people see it, right? When a, a, a hurricane comes through, you're thinking about, okay, five to eight inches of rain fell in this storm, but there are also other questions that we have to ask. And you alluded to it when you talked about the, the PIP um, uh, the probe there that's going to be measuring the drop sizes. Why do we care about drop sizes, right? Because we're thinking about how much rain falls overall, but yeah. we don't know how fast it falls. Yeah. We and why? But why do we need to know what the drop sizes are? You know, and that's a very important question. Even though we collected this data for the first time, mm -hmm. and we're seeing how we implement this in our research, but this is similar to if you look at the other perils, any other peril, uh, whether it's an earthquake. It all started with recording the earthquake. We need an accelerator mm -hmm. recording that with wind wind damage, recording the wind speed. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing goes to rain. We need to understand the anatomy of the peril itself mm -hmm. so we can understand how to realistically replicate that in a way that when we simulate this kind of uh, event, the effect is something that you experience out there. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some standards at the current time but the way they are applied to rate any window assembly or wall assembly is basically you just apply a static pressure with a certain wetting rate which is mm -hmm. you know like a nozzle that just sprays a certain flow mm -hmm. the question here that well first of all from a wind perspective we definitely know that wind outside is not just constant static mm -hmm. right. right so you have gusts mm -hmm. you have, yep. uh, a lot of turbulence so that's in terms of wind. Then from the other side is, well, how do we spray the water? Do we just throw a bucket of water? Yeah. Or, or is it going to be just mist, right? Even if we're doing the same wetting rate, mm -hmm. uh, we need to actually give an input of a realistic mm -hmm. distribution of water droplet sizes yeah. so we can simulate the realistic event. Then we can talk downstream and look mm -hmm. at the effect. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, 
like I, I remember I was chatting one time mm -hmm. uh, with you on Eastern analogy was yeah. like uh, a house basically right like yeah exactly the, it's yeah. like you know if I'm if I'm standing outside my yeah. house and I you know take the the, wa the water hose and yeah. I turn the little dial to mist you know yeah. and there's let's say there's a little breeze you know we, those those little water droplets they just kind of like flow where the wind takes them they just kind yeah. of meander and then some of those might hit hit the, the side of the house yeah. and then some of them might get deflected from the airflow and go somewhere else um, but from, let's say we turn that hose on to a more direct spray, a lot of that water, it's just incident with the wall, right? It's just hitting the wall and it's going to run down. It's not flying all over the place and just going where it will. So this is why, how does this, how does this change from like a wind perspective, right? It's going to carry those drops differently yep. and determine how much, how much of that water actually hits the, the structure. You hit the nail. I think you mentioned something very important, which is the inertia, mm -hmm. the size of the droplets. Yeah. If you have uh, something heavy, it's definitely going to be carried less in the wind field than something very light like mist. Mm -hmm. uh, and that affects how this water distribution impacts the building. And based on how water accumulates on the surface of the building, there is a percentage that gets admitted into defects, cracks, or even yes. mm -hmm. uh, seals. So by doing that, um, again, uh, we can look into least replicating that mm -hmm. in, the, in our uh, wind tunnel. Yeah. The same way that we replicate an actual wind field that we measure, sometimes we measure a hurricane wind field and we generate the same exact thing mm -hmm. because we want to be as accurate. And we do have theoretical studies in wind based on the measurements. So that's what we do. And now it's time to actually start doing that mm -hmm. on the wind-driven rain field. Right, right. And Thinking about the, the rain side, we did a, a water intrusion demonstration here in, in, in the lab uh, with my team a couple months back. Um, we got to be in the house as we were videoing it. We cranked the winds up to about 50 plus miles per hour, I think, because from safety reasons, we can't be in there when the winds are much higher than that. Um, so we're inside the structure videoing what's happening, and we had a set of French doors there that were facing the, yeah. the, the fans and the sprayers, right? Because yeah. we can spray wind in our, yeah. in our or excuse me, spray water uh, in our test chamber as the, the fans carry that water. But Ali, just the, the, the speed at which that water started pouring in because the, the roof was damaged, so we had the loss, we had lost the shingle um, and underlayment cover over top of that. So we just had the, the roof decking, the OSB decking, but there were cracks there at that seam. That's something that we talk about here in our Fortified program. We have that sealed roof deck, which basically just, it tapes that seam and creates a watertight seal so that if our roof cover gets damaged, the decking, it, it's not linking water into those cracks. But in a matter of 15 minutes, there was water everywhere. So from an insurance perspective and a loss perspective, this is why we care, right? Because water is just so damaging and it can inflate claims for thousands and thousands of dollars. Exactly. I mean, if I want now to open this bottle of water. Right, and just, <laughs> just a little, a little bit, demonstration. This, just <laughs> yeah, just like less than half a liter of, of water yeah. can cause a lot of mess inside to clean mm -hmm. up. So imagine if actually your roof is letting water in and, mm -hmm. and the thing is, if you have, let's say, a hotel or a hospital that you are operating or managing, mm -hmm. uh, you're not just gonna be, uh, you know, like replacing, but you're gonna be shutting down, especially if you're like a critical infrastructure, you're gonna be shutting mm -hmm. down uh, any room dedicated to that service. Yeah. Uh, because you're gonna have to be replacing uh, the soffits, for example, right. or uh, doing mm -hmm. uh, some work on refinishing uh, the wall or mm -hmm. removing the mold, yeah. which is uh, way worse. Mm -hmm. uh, in my opinion. Yeah, the mold uh, remediation, that, that can linger. I mean, I, I know after Hurricane Harvey, 
uh, with all the flooding that, that they had. Granted, that was you know water from from below from the from the heavy rainfall, but again, water, right? Lasting impacts, and it, it sometimes it can gut an entire home. Exactly, and imagine with the wind, coupled with the wind, that might cause some damage also mm -hmm. that can trigger more cracks or openings or defects to let wa more water right. in, right? Compounding. Exactly. So, and and to your point, this is why we have one of the reasons we have the sealed roof deck with fortified mm -hmm. is we are assuming that asphalt shingles are not going to stay on the roof right. uh, for other uh, reasons. But based on that assumption, we uh, go and put uh, another defense line, which mm -hmm. is having uh, more tapes, having, right. uh, uh, well, having tapes, because mm -hmm. uh, there is uh, no tapes in other uh, yeah. con configurations mm -hmm. or designations, um, and making more um, uh, considerations, for example, with fortified mm -hmm. silver on the on the openings, even. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we do look at that as uh, compon components in a system, let's mm -hmm. say. Um, and then I totally agree. Um, water intrusion is uh, a big beast, uh, mm -hmm. and it's coupled with wind, which is already mm -hmm. a big beast. Right. Right. So um, and yeah, and thinking about the places where water can get in, you know, I mentioned the, the, the French doors that we had. Um, I, I forget if they um, were specifically rated or not for, for wind. Um, they, the, the doors themselves did not fail because of wind. And by fail, I mean that the two doors didn't bust open. But water absolutely got in, and it got in very fast. Um, so it just shows you that like these are the kinds of things that we we care about right like window uh like entry through the window around the seals this is why we talk about like caulking your your windows and your doors where you have cracks where it's not supposed to have a gap right um to protecting those seals so that water can't find its way in because just like with all perils uh it will find the weakest link in the structure um that's certainly with wind and that water will find its way in if you talk to anybody that's been through hurricanes uh, with any number of years i mean they'll tell you the places where it normally comes in so it's our job to identify those areas, which we have. We know uh, even PTAC units or, um, or these air conditioning units that sit on top of commercial buildings. Think about hotels, right? The, the air conditioners that are in there, we have incredible water entry into that. So that's a business continuity loss and a commercial claim as well from all the water damage. You're thinking about gutting you know, 100 hotel rooms. That's, a, that's not a small bill. <laughs> Precisely. Um, like uh, I'm out of, uh, like, you, you hit the nails, like, exactly, out of, and to your point, um, so through PTAC units, for example, we, we have done that, mm -hmm. uh, and we have seen through that and other assemblies of testing and other um, practices of standard testings that we try and replicate in our own way, mm -hmm. uh, and by our own way means, like, actually trying to implement something that's... Uh, simulates uh, some gustiness, wind mm -hmm. gustiness. Right. And we have seen how water uh, infiltrates through as you have a gustiness of wind that mm -hmm. just pushes, and, and that's uh, really intuitive. Uh, but just to underline the fact that even if you don't have uh, damage itself, water mm -hmm. can in a way still find its way uh, through some weak links, mm -hmm. and the PTAC units is yeah. one of them if they are not place in a certain way that is described by uh, the standard mm -hmm. uh, and what we're trying to do now is couple the wind gustiness with a realistic 
distribution of water mm -hmm. and actually rate the wall assemblies, the windows, mm -hmm. PTAC units to something realistic that they might experience out there. Yeah. Which is a big uh, challenge mm -hmm. moving forward. And that reminded me of something that you and I talked about. Um, you know, let, let's say that, um, and, and I did want to get into a little bit of the, the things that you observed in Adalia. We talked about some of the winds that we observe, you know, from a, um, from a wind gradient as you go away from the center perspective. But I'm curious, I wanted to talk about how the, um, what the wind and drop sizes look like um, for uh -huh. that as well. But first yeah. I want to ask, like, let's say that we have um, a series of large, let, let's say that we have the wind flow constant, right? We've got a, a building in our test chamber and we want to crank up the fans to what? Let's say 50 miles per hour. Um, what are we looking at from a like a small drop size versus a large drop size in how because we talked you talked a little bit about the pressure right so that's wind that's going to be pushing against the wall and that's a, then coupled with the water from that perspective right so it, i guess kind of like what from a small drop perspective from a large drop perspective what do you kind of anticipate and this might be the things that we're trying to figure out too uh, yes and and if you asked me this question a month ago or <laughs> month and a half, I, I would like, have told oh. you, I don't know, <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, but looking at the pit data, uh, what I've seen when I was, you know, processing them a little bit is that at around the landfall time or afterwards, so when the iron ferritin got really close to the tower, I was seeing an increase in the size of the droplets measured by the pit up to about give or take five millimeters in size, mm -hmm. which is classified as a large Yeah, I was say, what, what's the, what are the sizes of drops roughly for so to be considered a small versus a large raindrop or water droplet, we'll say? So, let me think. I do not have the exact mm -hmm. uh, limit, mm -hmm. but uh, from what I remember is about half a millimeter okay. to uh, three millimeters is considered, you okay. know, like a regular droplet mm -hmm. size. Anything above is would be typically a large droplet of mm -hmm. water, and at some point it splits into. Mm -hmm. uh, so anything larger than about three or four millimeters is considered that like a really large droplet. And I remember yeah. like even before the hurricane, we when we were like deploying the towers, mm -hmm. it was intense rain, but the droplets even. I remember before, and I s did look a little bit at the data, and there were some large. Mm -hmm. like, more than the usual, I guess. But yeah. then again, we don't know what is usual because right, we, <laughs> we, are we don't know. <laughs> we're, yes. we're measuring this for yeah. the first time. Yeah. But, but it's like you know when you're driving and there's a thunderstorm and you have the, like these big right. droplets <laughs> of water falling down on yeah. you. Um, so this is what it looked like. And well, on, on the note of you know thunderstorms, and mm -hmm. I think it would be also of interest at some point to start taking that tower, or at least a smaller version of it that is quickly deployable relative to what we have mm -hmm. because the one we have is a big beast for hurricanes means we might need something quicker for uh, severe convective storm but really mm -hmm. look at how water also looks like in the event of straight line winds or right. or, or or during a thunderstorm yeah, yeah thinking about like derechos right we just yeah. had the august 2020 derecho that was so intense there in iowa um a, an extended period of significant straight line winds what, 60, 70 mile per hour plus. I mean, I know it got up over 100 in some of those areas, but um, but it's a shorter duration than a tropical cyclone, right? So it's it's kind of like how do all these um, perils differ from a from a wind and water perspective? Because that's that's ultimately going to help us 
you know, inform uh, insurers, inform test standards about what do we expect. It goes back to that expectation of performance of my materials, right? If I've got a French door, it's like, is, is how we are rating them good enough, right? And I think these are some of the answers that you're trying to get to, ultimately. Yeah, because this takes us to the, the question that is, uh, is the water, water droplet size distribution during a hurricane similar to something that might happen during a thunderstorm? Mm -hmm. Because if it is, then all right, we can make probably one kind of yeah. standard testing. If not, then um, we might need a few of them mm -hmm. um, yeah. to simulate the different wind-related perils mm -hmm. uh, that generate water. Yeah, and so uh, it's like we said, um, if, if we can't observe it, we can't model it, all right? If we can't model it, we can't predict it. So uh, it, it kind of all ties in. And when we go out to the field and collect these kinds of observations, in this case, you know, some that are among the first of its kind, you know, we will start to figure out, you know, some of the questions that we're trying to answer. We might be able to answer those, but you, you said it so beautifully in the beginning that in your early work, you said, well, I finished my work and then I finished it with a question. And then I was like, well, now I have to answer that question. And that's oftentimes how the uh, research goes here, right? We might solve one problem, but then we observed something else in the meantime that then sparks another area of research. So um, on that note, I mean, based on kind of what you've seen thus far in that data, kind of what are some of the next steps that um, you're hoping to take with this work? And I know we're doing this um, kind of an extension of some work that another colleague of ours here, uh, Cora, has been working on with the Cyclone Test Station. Is there yes. anything you want to share about that? I think you guys were just talking about this this morning. Yes. Uh, well, as a matter of fact, Cora and I were scratching our heads uh, this morning to try <laughs> yeah. and answer some of what you asked. A good, a good conversation <laughs> between two scientists over coffee is like, well, it's like, well, that doesn't yeah. make sense. Why would it do that? It's so weird. But these are the kind of cool, like, off-the-side conversations that we get to just kind of peek into. Uh, and Cora Pakal, he's a, one of our newest researchers um, here at the lab. So, yeah, what was that little conversation about? Well, so, uh, so some of the conversation actually was, so uh, with the cyclone testing station in Australia and mm -hmm. uh, uh, through Cora, uh, there were some tests uh, using the actual standard testing, mm -hmm. whether it's ASTM or the Australian uh, standard testing, to look at the wetting rates and the the uh, the water intrusion mm -hmm. rates given a certain wetting rate with a certain pressure to simulate the you know like the wind action. But right, how it's forcing the water through those openings, right? Exactly. It's like that's the pressure, right? You just think about like a water hose, right? You put your hand over it, the pressure of the water shoots out really fast. So that's kind of like what we're thinking about, it, yeah. Exactly. And from the previous phases of testing, actually, this is what we have seen. Uh, like, you know, applying constant pressure gives you a certain result. But then if you apply some, some gustiness, you will have a different uh, mm -hmm. result. So that is one. The second one is actually the pressures that are being applied, and that's actually from uh, the conversations with Cora uh, today, yesterday, and uh, yeah. over the last uh, <laughs> period of time, is uh, the pressures that are applied or the actual wetting rate are corresponding to high values uh, that they need to be looked into again. So for mm -hmm. example, the pressure corresponds to about uh, 70 meters per second, which is okay. kind Great. of a design, a design, exactly, mm -hmm. design level event. But still, we see water coming in at lower wind speeds, mm -hmm. right? right? So uh, the question is, how do we make a realistic box to test? And uh, this is where, where they are right now mm -hmm. at the cyclone test station. Yeah. According to Cora, mm -hmm. uh, they are designing now uh, an actual box that generates uh, maybe a little bit of 
of testiness, and this is based on you know some continuation of the previous testing that Cora mm -hmm. uh, was doing, and to actually produce uh, to put some different nozzles that you know spray uh, water at a, a specific rate, and we ended at the same question: How do we <laughs> <laughs> yeah. how do we include this uh, water droplet distribution? Right. Uh, and yes, uh, this is the moment where we actually are you know. The, the ideas are starting to brew, let's say. Yeah, um, yeah. Hopefully we get a stew at some point. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, yeah no, that's great. And, you know, as we kind of move forward in this, I mean, it would be great to have you back on again to kind of talk about some of uh, the ways that we furthered some of this work. But um, I think in this episode, we've kind of gotten to see um, a little bit about the, um, the, the creative process that goes into uh, looking into new areas of research. Um, mm -hmm. Also, some using some of the the old tools and and new tools, right? With our with our observing tower, how we can kind of be there on that next forefront of, of observational science, because um, that does feed into the, the the work that we do here in, in the test chamber. Because uh, if we can come and replicate those in the lab, that's one of the beauties of our chamber, right? Is that we can do testing at full scale with full scale structures, crank up those winds, apply the correct wetting rate, and get a more accurate depiction of how the water is getting in, why it's getting in, uh, where it's getting in, uh, and improve those test standards because it's that repeatable um, method that we can do here that gives you that sample size to really say something about it. Um, and so I, I thank you for sharing um, your work that you've, that you've done up to this point and kind of like um, opening people's eyes maybe as to like, here, here's why you care about wind-driven rain, like, right, and, and the droplets. And as we get to observe more and more of these uh, types of events, whether they be hurricanes, mm -hmm. severe convective storms, or you know, just maybe a, a heavy flooding rainfall, um, something like that. Um, that's going to tell us a little bit more uh, about the phenomena. Like, what is an average drop size distribution in tropical cyclones, and why do we care? Right? We know now why we need to know these things, but it's just so many different questions right now that we've we've developed. Exactly, and and. Uh Again, like uh, I take us to understanding the peril itself in order to understand the weight, not just the weight X, the effect uh, that it causes, uh, similar to anything. If we don't have information about earthquakes or like uh, the accelerograms, there would be it would be really tough to actually. Right. It would have been really tough to solve the problem, mm -hmm. or or at least try to. Uh, same thing for wind. And now what we're doing, we're pushing the needle. A little bit forward mm -hmm. on, on wind. and that takes us to why we go on deployment mm -hmm. uh, for all kind of perils that we are heavily or mainly involved in. We take what we observe, what we measure, and we use the full scale tunnel that we have uh, to its potential to actually simulate reality. Mm -hmm. And we actively look at the performance of the components in a real wind field. Mm -hmm. And that's the opportunity, and that's one of the reasons I really yeah, joined, yeah. Uh, joined IBS. It's really you don't need to scale uh, down your building, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, really works. Uh, looking at several aspects, you know, like uh, the aerodynamics, right. uh, etc., to some to some extent, because in the end, if you're scaling down your model, mm -hmm. you're not going to have a garage door, for example. You're not going to have yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Those are real world things that exactly. fail all Wish the time. Exactly, which are related to their, which have their own issues, mm -hmm. uh, and what that we also observe. Right. Uh, so that was, you know, some. There were some key aspects about the wind side 
this is what we're we're hoping to get somewhere mm -hmm. on using those data in, in, in the tunnel for rain simulation. Yeah. yeah, well that's great, Ollie, and I think you've um, ended it nicely there, um, kind of circling everything back and as to why all these all these observations matter. Um, mm -hmm. You've kind of, I think you've gotten to see some of that curiosity when you were younger kind of all come to fruition now here at the lab so we're looking forward to all the cool uh, research that you'll get to participate in and um, I'll be anxious to hear about your next field deployment whenever that is we're going into the winter season so might not be some opportunities but you know we'll, we'll get back in the mix. Yes uh, let's say that I'm fully trained now to any, <laughs> well, without putting the wildfires aside. <laughs> yes <laughs> yes uh, um, maybe we'll leave the wildfires yeah. uh, to our, our wildfire research yeah, researchers yeah. there so all right, well, Ali, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really enlightening and, and cool to just talk about your experiences on these field deployments, why we do them, uh, and to learn. Hopefully our viewers learned a little bit about wind, drum, and rain. It's kind of the, it's, it's the peril that's on our patches, you know, but it's like, it's just one of those things that I don't, haven't gotten to really talk a lot about um, and all the other work that I've been involved in here, but uh, this has been educational for me as well, so thank you. Oh, thank you for this experience. It was yeah. amazing. You know, all right, well, we'll have to have you back again soon to talk about your next deployment. Uh, until then, we'll hope you'll join us for the next episode, and thanks so much for listening today. We'll see you for the next episode of the Disaster Discussions Podcast.